0: Amen. Thank you all for leading us in such a fun and unique way of worship. Appreciate you all and your talents and your skills to, to bless us this morning. Sometimes it's really difficult to face tomorrow, correct? Uh, for, for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes we have difficulty in facing tomorrow just because we're tired, even. Right? I mean, tomorrow's Monday. And Mondays are difficult at times, and sometimes it is a, a physical tiredness, but sometimes it goes well beyond the physical exhaustion and into just the, the emotional and the mental, right? This, this routine, this monotony that sometimes we feel in life. We return back to this daily grind where we struggle to find significance or we struggle to find importance and joy and hope, and it's just difficult to face tomorrow. Or, or maybe our reasons for those difficulties in facing tomorrow are a little bit different. Maybe there's an apprehension. Maybe there's an anxiety, there's a fear, there's, there's some obstacle, some challenge that we know is on the horizon, or maybe it's the unknown of what the future is going to bring. And so for a lot of us, it's difficult at times to face tomorrow. And so the good news of Jesus Christ is that regardless of what tomorrow may bring, no matter what challenges we may face, no matter what uncertainties may be on the horizon, we have the opportunity for purpose We have the opportunity for joy. We have the opportunity for hope. Why? Because he lives. And that truth has changed everything. I mean, think about how it changed the disciples. I mean, here we've been walking through the first parts of Acts, and and we've talked last week about the ascension and how these, these disciples took in the fact that this resurrected Christ now sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and they knew that he lived. And so they didn't know what tomorrow was going to bring. They didn't know that it was going to be filled with persecution and torture and imprisonment. Yes, even death. But they were able to face it. They were able to meet it head on because they knew Jesus was alive. What a remarkable thing for them to have seen. You ever, you ever stop and just wonder and consider what it must have been like to be the disciples? I mean, just to really go through their same experiences. To, to, to have this front row seat of this Jesus and all that he did and all that he accomplished. I think about the invitation. All right here they are, they're going through their life, they're going through their routine, they're kind of going through their sense of norm. When all of a sudden it's disrupted by this teacher, this rabbi that comes to them and extends an invitation and says, "Come, follow me." And in that moment, they have to decide, is he worth it? Is he worth leaving my familiarity, my comfort? Is he worth foregoing this security? Can I leave my career? Can I leave everything I've worked for? Can I leave, yes, even my family? And these disciples, at every opportunity where they were given that invitation, their answer was yes, he's worth it. So they followed him. And that ushered them into this remarkable exposure to the, to the miraculous. They, they got to behold the sight being restored to the blind. They got to see the lame walk, the leper cleansed the seas and the waves stilled at the voice of this Jesus and they were in awe of his power. They were in awe of his teaching because he taught it as one with authority. I can't help but think of how they wrestled with the idea that this Jesus had the authority to forgive sins and all the things that he taught them, taught them about uh, morality and ethics, taught them about the kingdom, taught them about the scriptures And yet we can see repeatedly through the stories of the disciples how difficult it was for them to grasp it. Though though they had this front row seat, they still wrestled and were challenged with, do I truly comprehend it? Do I truly embrace it the way that I need it to be? And Think about prayer, for example. Prayer is going to be our, our focal point this morning for this message. And so think about how Jesus modeled and demonstrated for them the importance of prayer. Over and over again, through the course of this ministry, he would withdraw and retreat to a solitary place to pray. And so he modeled it. They knew just by watching him that this was a central part of his life and his fellowship with God. But he taught on it, right? As they watched and observed, it would probably prompt them to question, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus would give instructions. When you pray, pray to your Father in heaven. Ask for his name to be holy, for his kingdom to come, and his will be done just as it is here on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for your daily Provisions. Pray for forgiveness and for your ability to forgive others. Pray that you wouldn't be led into temptation. And Jesus would teach them what to pray for. He'd give them stories. He'd give them parables to explain the posture of their prayer, the mentality of their prayers. right Giving them the assurances that, in the same way that if a son asks his father for a loaf of bread and the father will not instead give him a snake, so do we know and have the assurance that our heavenly Father, who gives good gifts, will, will give those things to us when we ask. Give us this good gift of the Holy Spirit so we can seek and we will find, we can ask and it will be given. Or you'll tell the stories of the persistent widow who would relentlessly go back to the judge over and over and over again advocating for justice. And Jesus would say, will not God the Father do the same thing? Will he not give justice to those who cry out to him day and night? He'd teach on prayer. And yet, we'd see these moments where they didn't grasp it. That fateful hour in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where Jesus pulls them aside and says, pray. Pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation. And yet, what do they do? They lose their resolve. They lose their commitment. They fall asleep. A demonstration that despite all that proximity and that front row exposure to it, they didn't fully grasp it. Part of what I love about the book of Acts is it's almost as if we finally see this awakening within the disciples, That after the ascension, something clicks and they get it. And all these lessons, all these these things that were modeled for them and taught for them begin to take fruition and begin to to be on evidence in their life. And we see that in this passage today in their response with prayer. And so I want to kind of step into this text. I want to step into some of these lessons that we're going to discuss today and, and acknowledging the significance of prayer for the body of believers And as is often the case, anytime we approach God's word and submit ourselves to its teaching, we also need to assume that posture and ask the Lord to teach us that our hearts and our minds and our ears would be open to the things that he wants to share with us this morning. And so that's how I want to begin. So if you would, if you just bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's just come before our Father in prayer. Father, we do come before you now, and we admit that there are many times where it is difficult to face tomorrow but we gather together as brothers and sisters this community of saints broken and weary yet with with joy and hope because we know we can face whatever tomorrow brings because christ is alive and so it's with that hope and it's with that assurance and it's with that promise that we come before you now god and we eagerly desire for you to open up the truths of your holy word to each of us now God, help it awaken within our hearts and our souls and our minds what it means to follow you. Let this not be a routine, let this not be some some habit, God, but may this be a sweet and sacred time that we get to sit and marvel at who you are and the promises that you've given us. So we ask that you send your spirit and you bless this time with us now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. Let me give you a quick recap as we prepare to read this passage for us this morning. We've been going through this series in the book of Acts, but in the last couple of weeks, we've really tried to zero in on one particular area of focus. Namely, what does it mean to wait? Right? These were the, the uh, unique instructions that Jesus extends to his disciples, to wait for the gift that my Father has promised. And so we've looked at what does it mean to, to wait and to understand these instructions. Last week, we talked about what does it mean to wait for his return, And how waiting for his return and understanding the promise of Jesus' return keeps us not from focusing in the sky and having a misguided focus, but to be able to focus rather on the earth around us in the task that is his hand. right? The task of going and being witnesses wherever God would send us. Well, the passage that we look at today takes us into one more glimpse into how these disciples, how these early believers waited on the Lord. And that this waiting was marked in prayer, right? Praying together in the significance of it and so as we read through this text part of what we're trying to do is to understand how we can emulate this posture so that we can also stand boldly on these promises that god has given us and that prayer is an essential characteristic of that waiting and so with that being said we're going to read a little bit of a more um, lengthy section of scripture today we're going to pick up in verse 12 and read through the end of chapter one so follow along with me if you have your scriptures Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. And there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, a keldama. That is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us this whole, this whole time that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Vesabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. And so he was added to the 11 apostles. All right, it's a lengthy passage. And here's how I want us to, to kind of approach it today. I want us to acknowledge that what is changed here is that we have this moment where we see the disciples begin to respond to a crisis. Right, everything up into this moment after the crucifixion and resurrection has been somewhat euphoric. Right? Jesus continues to reveal himself and all these convincing proofs, and they see this ascension, but now they have to deal with a tragedy. They have to deal with the crisis. And what is that crisis but Judas's betrayal and death? Right? And so part of what we see in this passage are some of the, the, the details of Judas' death. And, and I want to speak to that briefly. And understanding that we, the only other place in the New Testament where we have any of these details of Judas' death is Matthew 27. And, and there seems to be at least some, some contradictions there, because in Matthew 27, he says that Judas died by hanging himself, but here in Acts chapter 1, we see a description of him falling headlong and his body bursting open, his intestines spilling out. Very graphic, okay? Uh, and, and so you kind of wonder with what's, which way did it really happen? But scholars, and even Augustine and many others have for for centuries argued that this doesn't necessarily mean that there's a contradiction, right? That that you could have had both events occur, that Judas could have first hanged himself and then fallen over and it uh, could have unfolded just as it's described here in Acts. Uh, You do have maybe some discrepancies in terms of who bought the field and why they bought the field, but what you do see is the consistency that Judas died a gruesome death, right? That that the field was purchased and that that field was referred to as the field of blood. And so we have stepped into this crisis, and the reason that we know it's a crisis, and, and Luke is really interest, or a very, uh, takes a very unique approach in how he introduces this crisis in this section of Acts, by, by providing this list, right He takes us to this, this room where all the believers are now waiting, and he lists off the disciples, but he only lists 11. And so he's making a statement more by who is not mentioned than who is mentioned. Judas, no longer with him, this, this empty chair this vacancy amongst them and so I want us to step into that and think how how did that feel to them you ever thought about that like how how did Judas's betrayal resonate with the disciples I mean if you think about it it's not enough for us just to ask how did Jesus feel about being betrayed by one of his followers but how did they feel I mean here was Jesus the object of their hope their adoration right their their loyalty and all of it was taken from them by one of their own, one who was of their number, who shared in their ministry. How did that impact them? I can't help but think that there was was anger, there was was frustration, there was disappointment, there was shame, there was embarrassment. I mean, we can empathize with this when, when we think of situations where we've been betrayed by those that we call friends, those that we've walked alongside with, that we felt like we had a shared bond with, and then all of a sudden, complete betrayal. And yet it was more than just friendship that they were dealing with. Judas was a leader. He he was not just somebody in the background. He was one of the 12. This is a story of fallen leadership. And how many times do we see it in our context today where we see communities of faith shattered by fallen leaders? Leaders that give in to some sort of moral failing, some sort of, some error, something that that when it happens, it's so devastating, the community shatters and almost disbands. And they become marked more by the wounds of that betrayal rather than the healing. And yet this community gives us an example of how to deal with all of that, all those emotions, all of those frustrations and disappointment and shame and find healing. And so how do they do it? What did they do to navigate this tragedy, this situation? They prayed. They prayed together. And I love that emphasis, right? I mean, notice that it's, it's not just a few, right? Even the, the inclusion that, that all the women and Mary and, and Jesus' brothers, everyone was there and they were praying together. And that's really the, the focus of our message this morning. This is more than just what does it mean for you to pray individually, but what does it mean for community to come together and pray? Right, there, there's, there's no segregation here. There, there's no distinction between age or gender or race. The, the believers are gathering together in the face of this trial, in the face of this difficulty, in the face of this task, and the promise of the ascension, and they're saying, how do we move forward with what God has entrusted to us? We pray, and we pray together. And so the lessons that I want us to learn this morning speak to how do we come together and pray as a community. And I, I think there are at least five things that we can, we can really dive into in terms of this particular passage. And so I'm not going to go sequentially. Like I'm not going to just go verse by verse and, and kind of look at it this way. I want us to anchor ourselves in that, that key verse, verse 14, that says they constantly join together in prayer and then look at all the details of this story to see how that prayer and that commitment to one another was truly marked. And so here are are some of the things I want us to consider. The first thing that we see outlined for us in terms of how this community prayed alongside one another is that they understood the need. They knew what they needed as a community, not just as individuals, but as a community. Judas had betrayed them. He had left a particular important role of, of leadership. There was this vacancy, and it had to be addressed. It could not go neglected. Why was it so important, right? Verse 22, because we need one of these men to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. It's this whole idea, this new identity that has so taken shape in the birth of the early church, right, that they have been called to be witnesses, to testify to these facts. And this is an incredibly important task that has been entrusted to us. So we can't leave this neglected. That's why it's so important. Can you imagine the response if the, if the 11 had said, well we got enough. I think we'll be all right. See, part of them understanding the need shows us just how important and in, in the, the level of commitment that they assign to the task and the instructions that Jesus had given them. Right? I mean, if they had just neglected it and been like, well, no, we're fine at 11. We don't need 12. It, it's almost the equivalent of like a, a basketball coach saying, I only need four. That's my team. If you saw a coach do that, you'd think they're not taking this seriously. And so with the disciples saying we need 12, it demonstrates to us the level of their commitment and their conviction to take these instructions seriously. Do we do the same? Do we we model that same level of commitment? Do we understand the need of the instructions that have been given to the church and to the community of saints? Or do we find ourselves more often than not going, eh, they can do it. This was the response of the community. They understood the need to fulfill this task. And in addition to that, they, they put these requirements to make sure that this need was filled correctly. Right? They, they needed somebody that could step up that had been with Jesus since John's baptism until the time that he was taken up from them. Right? So from the baptism to the ascension, these were the requirements, these were the qualifications, which tells us a couple of things. Number one, it helps highlight the unique and distinctive nature of being an apostle. Right? Those requirements cannot be handed down from generation to generation. You find other passages in scripture that speak to the qualifications to be a deacon, to be an overseer. Those things can be handed down from generation to generation. You cannot hand down being an eyewitness to the baptism and ascension of Jesus. All right, so the 12 played a very unique role. And yet what I love about the requirements that are labeled here and are referenced here is really more what it isn't said. All right. so here you have the first nominating committee, right, gathering together, and they're figuring out what do we need? Who, who can fill this spot? Here's what they don't say. We need a great communicator. We need somebody that's really influential. Who's got a good network of people? We need a strategist. You know what? Judas handled the money. We have anybody with a financial background. Oh, better yet. Do we we know anybody wealthy that could maybe bankroll some of the ministries we want to do? What were their requirements? Who intimately knows Jesus? Who spent time with him? Who knows him? Who Who was there when he spoke every step of the way? The one qualification was an intimate relationship with Jesus. That's the qualification that all of us should expect of leadership. You should expect it of me, you should expect it of the staff, and you know what you should expect it of yourselves. If we're going to be able to respond to this need of being witnesses and to lead out into these responsibilities, we need to understand that we must intimately know Jesus. That is more than more than anything else. That's what's required to have this relationship, to have this connection. And so these requirements are outlined for this community so that they can specify who is it that can, that can represent this sort of intimate awareness of who Jesus was. And so who ends up qualifying? Well, this is where we get an introduction to, to Joseph, called Barsabbas, or Justice, man of many nicknames, apparently, and Matthias. Right? And we, we don't really know much about these men up until this point, do we? And so that That, to me, is very interesting. I kind of wonder, how did they feel in this moment? All right, here they are. Now, we know that they've been with them the whole time. Okay, so this is not just some obscure person that they've selected or identified. These are people that have been with Jesus and the Twelve, pretty much the entirety of the ministry. And so I wonder how they felt when all of a sudden this discussion unfolds and these nominations, these requirements are being discussed, and all of a sudden those names get mentioned. I wonder if they sat there and they said, you know what, it's really kind of you. Um it's gonna be a busy summer, um, traveling a lot, got a lot going on at home right now. I just, I just don't know if I'll be your best fit. But I really like this Joseph guy, he's, he's a good option for you. You sense almost this, this humility and this eagerness to step into this responsibility. And I think about that for us today. Right, that we all need to be ready to step into the needs of the community. Right, both Matthias and Joseph, demonstrate to us that they're willing to put aside whatever their needs are, whatever their normal was, and to respond to the needs of the community and to be ready for more entrusted leadership. All of us should be cultivating that sort of personal relationship with Christ so that when the the needs of the body are made known, we can step up and be ready. And we don't hide behind busy schedules or, or different obligations. We understand the task. That is at hand. So they understood the need. I think one of the biggest challenges for each of us is when we, we distort what needs really are, right? And that that was a challenge that they also had to guard against: is to to make sure that they had an accurate understanding of their needs. But we've all been there, correct? Where we, we have those distorted uh, understanding of what needs are and how that begins to influence our prayers. I was talking about this the other day with my children. We were we were hanging out in Annabelle's room, and I don't know if you guys know this about my daughter, but she loves stuffed animals. And I think love might be an understatement, right? I mean, like, if you want a way to my daughter's heart, just get her a stuffed animal, and it will just make her a day. It's her collection, and I, I, we are either nearing or we have exceeded triple digits in terms of stuffed animals in the Smith household, okay? So we have a ton of them. And so I think we were sitting in a room, I can't remember the, the way the conversation began, but we were talking about uh, her birthday, I think, and different presents that she wanted, and naturally, she wanted a stuffed animal, Right? And I was like, look, we just got you a stuffed animal, right? Many times already. You've gotten one for Christmas. I don't know that you really need another stuffed animal. And she said, okay, I'll just pray for one. I was like, well, that's not really how prayer works. And she said, well, why not? You told us that we should pray what we want and what we should be able to ask God for the things that we need. And I was like, good point, right? we should, but that's kind of like me praying for a million dollars. And what was really unique about it was there was this sincere, you know, desire to understand, well, what is prayer meant to be, right? And if we're not careful, we can, we can have a misunderstanding of needs and have a misfocused prayer, right? That, that we can't just turn our prayers into our wishes, Right, that somehow those needs have to be informed. And so the other thing that we see in this story is that, yes, they understood their needs, but those needs also required an understanding of Scripture. I mean, how many times do we see Scripture exposited and explained through the discussion of the, of the early believers? Right? Peter stands up and he says, listen, all these things had to be fulfilled concerning Judas as they were taught in the Scriptures. And and it takes us back to this this discussion that we see after the resurrection, where Jesus opened the disciples' minds to the the law and to the prophets and all that was written concerning the Messiah. And so now, all of a sudden, these disciples almost become these masters of the Old Testament. And so they're quoting Psalm 69, he's quoting Psalm 109. Psalm 69 becomes a a key reference point for so much of the early church. It's quoted not just in Acts 1, but in John 2, John 15, Romans 11, Romans 15. It's a key piece, and they're beginning to say, this is what these scriptures mean. And yet it was more than just specific references to the Psalms, it was an understanding of the whole Old Testament in this larger story. See, part of what was going on here was that they understood this to be a continuation of God's promises, a fulfillment of God's promises, not a new promise. Right? So, so they saw this story of God's chosen people, right? this story that, that led to the call of Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. And if they were going to carry this message to indicate that it was a continuation of all that God had been doing, they needed 12. Jesus had taught that. Right? Numerous times in the gospel, the disciples will serve as judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. We see it again in Revelation, right? With the coming of the new earth and the new heaven and the new Jerusalem, there will be these, these thrones and these foundations that have the name of the 12 disciples. This was a significant reality for them to say, if we are going to be able to say that this is a continuation of God's promises, we need 12 So they understood scripture. They understood their place in God's larger purposes and God's plan. This was a scripture-informed prayer, which is a lesson for you and me. That the most powerful and the most effective prayer is the way that we have a true understanding of our needs as a community is to have them be informed by the scriptures. To love God's word deeply enough to where we can recognize it, we can pursue it, and it influences how we pray. Right, through the outpouring of God's Spirit and his leading, we, we can't but help pray through the Psalms. We can't help but pray for us to be clothed in the armor of God, for us to be able to step into these same promises. They understood not just the need, but they understood Scripture. Now, what I really want us to dive into for a moment as well, though, is this, the, the details of verse 14. Right, verse 14 says they joined together constantly in prayer. And I think there are two more lessons that we can take just from that verse alone. First, you think about this idea of constantly. That that word means persistent activity. And with it comes this connotation of endurance, perseverance, not giving up. This is the the idea of that persistent widow finally taking effect in the lives of the early believers. We're not going to stop praying. They understood not just the need, not just the scriptures. They understood the urgency. They're committed to it. They saw it as priority. This was a chief mark of the early church to pray fervently and consistently and with urgency. And I wonder, do we carry that same urgency in our lives? You know, I think about all the wonderful things that take place in the life of our church. And there are a lot of amazing things. I mean, great stories of how different ministry opportunities are created through teaching people English. or or giving people uh, things that they need, meeting felt, physical needs, or or being able to work with young families and children, or being able to send youth to different camps, or all the ways that we do outreach in the different ministries and different areas of our community. There's so many different things that we could highlight. But you want to know, for me personally, one of my, my favorite things, one of the things that I think should be a sign of the utmost importance? It's the time that we've designated to come and pray together as a church. Every Wednesday, 6 to 6.30 last Wednesday of every month. And I wonder, do we meet that with the urgency that it desires and demands? I mean, think about it. A lot of times, I will confess to you, I feel the pressure to kind of jazz it up. How do I make this more interesting? What do we need to add to this prayer service so that more people will be there? Do we need to sing more? Do we need to be more creative? Do we need to have different ideas? What do do we need to do? And, And it kind of saddens me because in reality, the prayer is the gift. We have the opportunity to come together as brothers and sisters and sit before the throne of God and let our hearts and our souls be known and that should be enough. And it should create urgency within us. We don't need to sell it. And the fact that we often meet it with, well, I don't know if I have time, shows us, perhaps, that maybe we don't assign it the urgency and the priority that it demands. They carried that. There was nothing greater to them than to gather together with brothers and sisters and pray. They gave it urgency. Will we? I think about not just the urgency, but they gathered together right? This togetherness is defined as having one mind, right? This, this commonality. See, they weren't gathering together just because of a set of circumstances. This was more than just a commonality because of an assembly. It's not like, hey, we all just showed up at the same time. They understood that there was a particular purpose, right? There was a specific need that was informed by the scripture, so they shared these common interests, and they were praying to that end, they understood the task that was at hand. They understood the promises that God had entrusted them, and they were praying for those things to be fulfilled. And so I want us to step into that for a moment. I, I want us to think, what does that look like for you and me? How do we come together as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and pray not just with urgency and not just with, with an awareness of need and Scripture, but with one mind? How do we understand what God wants to entrust to us in this context, in this day, in this time? Well, there's many ways that we could unpack that this morning. One that I would have to mention is just the, the prayer of UBC that we've been referring to for several years now. right? That when we gather together as a church, one of the things that we constantly refer back to is this desire for us to see God's power unleashed. Right? To see him move in mighty ways in our lives, in this church, in the community, in the world. And why do we want to see him move? So that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. Right? That's, that's a a censoring prayer, but but can we get specific? I think this is a, a year in particular that affords us the opportunity for more specificity because this is a milestone year for our church. right? This is the year that we celebrate 90 years as a body of believers, a 90-year anniversary. And, and yes, we're going to celebrate it with an occasion, with an event on June 2nd, but I want it to be a celebration that goes far beyond just one day where we commemorate it. But throughout the year, for us to to truly respond to it with the sort of significance that it demands. And so a couple of things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that I want to remind you of. There are these, these challenges that I want us to put before us as we move into this milestone for our church. Right? The, in one way, I want us to, to look back and celebrate the past, but I want us to do so so that we further anticipate the future and where God is leading us. And so here are some challenges that we've talked about. Number one, I want each and every one of us to be asking ourselves more intentionally, is my life in step with the Spirit? It has to start there. Do I intimately know Jesus? Do I understand his word? Do I personally understand the needs, not just of this body of believers, but of this community? Am I in step with what God is leading me to do? And if I'm not, what do I need to do in my life to correct that? The conversation has to begin there. And so I don't know what that looks like for you. I, I don't know if you need to carve out more time for you to withdraw to a solitary place and pray. I don't know if you just need to be in the script. I, I don't know what it looks like for you, but you have to begin with that question. Is my life in step with the Spirit? The other challenge that I'm extending to us as a church this year is that we would embrace a higher level of sacrificial generosity. I and mean, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk through this in two different phases. Okay? And, and I said it a couple of weeks ago when I brought it up that I know that there's this hesitation with many of us that we say, oh no, here we go. We have to talk about money. yes. Yes, we do, because that's a natural response of the gospel, and we'll see it in greater detail here in just a couple of weeks, right? And so we can't skirt around that question, and so I want us to ask it on two levels. Number one, I want us to think about it from a long-term perspective, right? what, what does it mean for me to commit to this point in time to this body of Christ? Do I have an ongoing, regular commitment? It's more than a tithe, right? It's a, it's a gesture it's an, an, an opportunity to worship the Lord and saying, yes, I believe God can do amazing things through brothers and sisters who have a shared vision and a shared purpose. And I'm willing to commit to it. So are you willing to do so? I don't, if you've never given consistently to the church or you've given consistently for decades, all of us need to, to evaluate what is my willingness to have this long-term commitment? That has to be a foundation of who we are. And so I want us to be prayerfully considering that. You're going to hear more conversations about it. It's an issue we need to address. We, we have not demonstrated uh, appropriate stewardship and sacrificial generosity up to this point. And we need, we need to correct it, not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of joy for what God wants to do through us and with us. And so that's step one, to evaluate this long-term commitment. But we also want to commemorate this year with a, a one-time commitment. Now, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. We're going to have this special initiative later in the year for a 90 and 90 campaign, right, to celebrate the 90-year anniversary. And we want to hopefully raise $90,000 that we can spend within the walls and $90,000 that we can give beyond the walls, right? So we want to evaluate certain things about who we are as a church that allow us to do some things internally that demonstrate, hey, we're excited about the next 90. And some of that is just caring for the things that have been given to us, right, in this building that's been entrusted to us. We've talked about improving certain things on the first floor, taking care of crinkly, ripped apart wallpaper in certain places of the church, and just saying, yeah, we, we're excited about where God is leading us. But even more than that, this other 90,000 that we hope to raise and generate to give away to the community, because we want to be a church that ultimately is known for its generosity, and so we've talked about how we want to take the second 90,000 and, and develop a portion that we could maybe give to uh, human trafficking, organizations like Traffic 911, and say we want, to, we want to help make an actual tangible difference in the lives of people that are going through recovery and who have been rescued out of such a horrendous situation. We've talked about giving a, a financial gift to a local school a school in a more troubled neighborhood that's often looked over, maybe neglected in certain needs that they have in their community and say, we just want to give this away to you so that you can help better educate some of our children and caring for the youth in our midst. We've talked about helping with uh, adoption agencies, right, and still fighting for the orphan and for the preservation of families and being able to give a gift to, to some of the, the most felt needs within our community. So we want to do all these things, but that's phase two and we have to first address phase one. But if we can do all of that, it allows us to step into this challenge to celebrate this year of being those that are sacrificially generous and honoring not just the legacy of this church, but what we see amongst the early believers. And then the third challenge was that we want to continue to be disciples who make disciples. Can I be honest with you? More than I want to celebrate our 90-year anniversary with dollars and cents, I want to celebrate it with transformed lives. What, What would happen if we saw 90 baptisms this year? Right, what would happen if all of a sudden we too took on this task of being witnesses in our local areas, in our communities, and actually to the ends of the earth? What, what would happen? I mean, we, we have some incredible things already transpiring. We have some incredible stories, some incredible ministries. I want more. And I want us to crave more and pray for more. To have this one mind. And so a question we need to ask ourselves as we head into this year, who are you pouring into? Who are you investing in? How do we continue to live into this task of being disciples who make disciples? What are we doing to actually demonstrate our love to seek and to save the lost and the least? And these are exciting things. These are challenges, but that's exactly where the gospel begins to flourish. And so you look at this community of faith and we can emulate them by stepping into a similar posture and saying, we're going to fervently gather together in prayer, and we're going to do so understanding the needs of the community, understanding the scriptures and how it informs us. We're going to understand the urgency and we're going to understand the importance of being united in our prayers. But I want to close with this. I want to close with what I would argue is the most important part. And this comes with the discussion on this whole practice of casting lots. Right, this is how it ends. And if you want to know very specifically, casting lots, but they had these kind of marked stones and they would throw them and this would be a way in which God would reveal his will. Okay? And so when we read sections like this in scripture, it's important for us to remember the difference between things that are described and things that are prescribed, right? So there are certain things that you read that are described in the Bible that don't necessarily come with a certain, hey, here, you better do this, but other things that are prescribed. So like in this example, there is an exhortation, there is a prescription for us to continue to search the scriptures and to pray together. There is not a prescription for us to cast lots. It was, it was a practice for this particular point in time. And I think part of it is even used by Luke to show the contrast to how how the disciples heard from the Lord before the gift of the Holy Spirit and how they heard from the Lord after. Because once the gift of the Holy Spirit arrives, they're able to be in tune with God's plan and His purposes in a totally different way that diminishes the practice of casting of lots. So you and I or more in step with listening to the Spirit than practicing the cast of lots. But here's what we see through this practice, is that despite all these different things, or in addition to all these different things that they were doing together as a community, they knew one of the most important things was to stop and listen. This was the moment where they got to listen to the Lord. A community that prays together understands the importance of listening. Prayer is always a dialogue we have to learn what does it mean to silence our own heart, to silence our own souls and our own minds and listen to his voice. This is them coming together and saying, Father, you know every heart. Show us. (laughs) What a beautiful prayer for a community of saints. And that's how I want us to end. I want us to assume a posture where we just listen. Sometimes we struggle to stand on God's promises because we've stopped listening. And we don't hear them as clearly as they should resound within our hearts and our souls and our minds. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you just to assume a posture of prayer. And here in a second, I'm going to read some scriptures over us. And these scriptures are going to be passages that are attributed to the words of Jesus. And so I want this to be an an effort on our end to place ourselves before his feet and to listen to what our Savior has to say. And so eliminate the distractions. Eliminate anything else that would crowd your mind for a moment and just listen to the voice of our king. He tells us, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Repent. And believe the good news. Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You who has ears to hear, let him hear. For I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Who do people say that I am? I'm the bread of life. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. For this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. My heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Mary, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Why are you so troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look in my hands, and my feet, as I myself touch me and see, do you truly love me. Do you truly love me. Do you truly love me? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Father in heaven, we come before you as your people. And we want to hear your voice. Father, we pray that as brothers and sisters, we too would step into these promises that are ancient past, but reveal themselves with greater purpose and greater clarity than ever before. God, that we would be able to see you clearly. God, that we would be able to understand the needs that you have placed before us in this particular point in time, that we would have an understanding of your word, God, and it would inform how we speak to you. God, that we would we would meet it with urgency because we long to be with you. We long to be in your presence. And Father, that we would pray with one mind, that we would pray with this unbelievable togetherness. Father, that we would be able to overcome those those moments and those feelings that we walk alone and we we live in isolation, but God, that we would see the strength of belonging to a family. God, that we would understand the importance of listening to you and to your voice. And as we've read back through these words of our Savior, these words of our King, may they bury themselves deep within our hearts that we would leave here today with confidence, with joy, with purpose, and with hope standing fully on your promises to your praise and to your glory, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to extend an invitation to us all now. You know, the whole idea of this series and emphasizing God's promises is designed to help us move forward with confidence. And we think about the last few weeks, how we've had the opportunity to think about what does it mean to wait on the Lord And my hope and my prayer is that as we move forward and we leave here today, we would do so with joy, we would do so with conviction, we would do so with hope and purpose, because we know that God's promises are sure. We hear the words of our Savior, and those words define our lives more than anything else. And so I don't know what your response is, but I pray that your response goes beyond just the next song, that it goes into the rest of the day and into the rest of this week. Now, if there are things that need to be taken care of in this moment, if you need to join the church, if you need to commit your life to Christ. If you need prayer for anything that is making tomorrow a difficult thing to face, then come forward. We will celebrate that with you. But our response goes well beyond a song and goes into our very lives. And so let us do that with an assurance that we do so together. We do so as brothers and sisters. We do so encouraging one another on to love and good deeds. And we do so standing on God's promises. So with that being said, let's stand together now. Sing the song of response and respond accordingly. Standing on the promises of Christ.